0: It's um, the ancient Roman historian Livy there in the picture who said this, he said that his age was an age in which we can neither endure our vices nor face the remedies needed to cure them. And in many ways I suspect that describes our culture. And a vast range of sensitive people uh, today recognise that underneath the sort of glitter of, of our culture lie deep problems from the breakdown of the family to terrorist plots to economic downturns and a thousand other things. We live with constant reminders that the sort of lead narrative of our culture that everything's getting better and better. He's rather thin. Interestingly, many of the most popular prophets of uh, our age recognise a real religious dimension to that unease. Um, last week I mentioned Ian, M- Ian McEwan. His books are absolutely fascinating. I mentioned last week, let remind you of it, his book Saturday. In which Matthew Arnold's poem "Dover Beach," um, lamenting our culture's loss of Christian faith, takes centre stage in that book. There is a violent young man in that book for who, who for a moment, is absolutely stopped in his tracks by that poem, lamenting a um, loss of Christian faith, like, the, like the tide. Going down," says Matthew Arnold. Just for a moment, he stopped, and then he continues on his life of rampage. What's McEwan trying to say? Or another McEwan book, um, uh, *Atonement*? That most of you who've seen the film here yeah. no, easier—who's not seen the film *Atonement*? <laughs> yeah, about two thirds, one third. *Atonement*: the basic message of uh, Ian McEwan's. Uh, book Atonement is, um, uh, the story is about a young woman who does a terrible thing, betrays a couple of people cl- close to her, and tries to make attainment for it in a very imaginative way, if you don't know the story. But the message is this there is no attainment. There's a sort of undertone of sadness in McEwan's books which have a particularly Christian twist to them. I'll take another writer, Nick Hornby. His uh, um, book, for instance, How to Be Good, the main character in it is a woman seeking to have a life at ease with herself, at ease with her conscience, to be a good person. And if you know the book, religion is toyed with in a hilarious way and uh, discarded. And uh, finally, she resolutely settles on a conventional middle class married life that she valiantly sets out on. At the end of the book the very last sentence is absolutely shocking. She says just at the wrong moment I catch a glimpse of the night sky and I can see that there is nothing out there at all. It shocks. It tantalises as if the whole her whole quest for a good life is ultimately she senses built on nothing, as Libby said, you see we cannot endure our vices as a nation. there is um, a repeated sense of of mourning and anxiety and sense of loss that comes up again and again and again in our culture. We cannot endure our vices, but we're far from ready to accept the remedies. We look everywhere far. Remedies. We look to government to either spend more or create a big society. We look to science to solve all our problems. We look to counselors to make us uh, give us inner peace. We look to alternative religions. We look to a hundred other things, but we don't look to what those authors are toying with. We don't look to the Bible. Many, many people in this country, it seems to me, are sort of in a spiritual no-man's land. They're not really happy with where our culture has gone and where they find themselves. But they're not ready yet to do anything really decisive about it. It struck me this week as I was meditating on 1 Samuel 7 that that's very similar, has a lot of similarities to where Israel have got to at the end of 1 Samuel 6. Let me, let me explain to you, let me just remind you of the story in, in brief outline so far. We have seen in 1 Samuel chapters 1 to 6 God is doing something reasonably simple and characteristic that Hannah announced in 1 Samuel 2. God is raising up the humble in this new generation. Humble Hannah, humble servant-hearted Samuel are being raised up and God is putting down the proud. Proud, Hophni and Phinehas. Notice priests, notice religious people, people who who actually... Ought to be God's mates are not. They are proud, and they are put, they are put down by God. They are slain in the battlefield, and indeed, because the because the whole nation has been infected by that, so that pride, the nation is defeated, and the Ark of God, the symbol of God's presence, was captured by their ancient enemies, the Philistines. But you see. Though God actually does focus his attention on pride amongst his people, he puts down all proud people. And the Philistines proudly think they have defeated the Israelite God and find to their cost, we saw last time, that no, their God is humbled and defeated and they have a plague upon them. God raises up the humble, says 1 Samuel. God puts down the proud, and uh, you might think that the story is sorted now. The Philistines, remember last week, you saw, and uh, put the ark on uh, uh, an oxen cart. It went straight back to Israel. Things are getting sorted. God is coming back to His place, and everything is um, uh, is now in order. But it is not. Look at 1 Samuel uh, chapter 6, verse 19, for instance. Um, the uh, ark has returned and then we learn that God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, that's Israelites, putting 70 of them to death because they had looked into the ark of the Lord and the people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. Here we go again, you see. God goes amongst the Philistines and plague and trouble comes on them but God comes back to the Israelites and it seems plague and trouble still comes upon them because they are still not treating God with the reverence he deserved. They looked into the ark. And uh, the Philistine reaction is very um, interesting. Uh, The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. Verse 19, And the men of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? In other words, where can we send God? Doing exactly the same... As the Philistines had done, verse 21, they sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jarim, saying, the Philistines have returned the Ark of the Lord, come down and take it up to your place. So the people of Kiriath-Jarim t- came and took up the Ark of the Lord, they took it to Abinadab's house on the hill, consecrated Ele- Eleazar his son to guard the Ark of the Lord. But let's not have God right in our midst, Let's keep him at arm's length. Let's put him up there in that remote place with that um, weirdly godly family over there. We can't have him amongst us, amongst the generality of us. It's far too scary. Uh, to be fair to the Israelites they do set up a priest to guard the ark and to uh, presumably oversee worship but they're not really sorted with God you see they're keeping him out there First 2 uh, of chapter 7 says they did that for 20 years can you see begin to see some connections with today. They're not perfect, but they are very interesting. And last week we we witnessed the Philistines just walking away from God. But but this week we're seeing people who demonstrate some degree of concern for God. But he's not in their midst. That's where he was supposed to be. Let me say, um, I suspect that applies to two groups of people, both of whom will be represented here. One to those people like Ian McEwen, Nick Hornby, many others, who wouldn't yet profess to be a Christian. But they have some... Sense of loss. So they come to places like this to try and explore it. In uh, verse 2 it says, All the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. That may be slightly generous of the NIV. Um, uh, It literally means... It literally said they mourned together after the Lord. Not necessarily indicating that they sought the Lord, they just felt the loss of the Lord in McEwan. And then there's another group I think this may well apply to. Very important group who will be represented here too. There are people who who do profess Christian faith, much more like the Israelites. But actually, to be honest, in your heart you sense a slippage. You 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 you, you put God there at a, at a at a nice safe distance, but you do sense the loss. And as this text suggests, that can go on for decades, you know. Indeed, to be honest, there's a there's a common problem in our culture that pastors up and down the country see again and again and again. Vibrant young Christians like are overwhelmingly represented here. Vibrant young Christians do not always become vibrant middle aged Christians and vibrant older Christians. Especially amongst men, it seems. All the, 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 the combination of the threats and the allurements of our world eat away at your faith. If you are a young believer here, do not be naive about that. The phenomenon of spiritually immature, middle-aged men is, is common enough to be called an endemic, uh, 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 endemic amongst many people. It happens ever so subtly, ever so imperceptibly, over a long period but it happens. 1 Samuel chapter 7 then is a massively important chapter that we need to look at because it begins with Israel having God at a distance and it ends with Israel having God, if you want to put it that way, at their heart. It begins with them actually still as weak and miserable and fearful as they uh, ever had been, and it ends with resounding victories for the people of God. And what I want to look at, just briefly, is what changes that? And do you see why it's so important? It is massively important for our culture, because there are tons of people out there who have some sort of sympathy with God, but keep him at arm's length. And I won't be surprised, a good number here too. What's going to make the difference? Three things I want to show you that happen in this chapter. Three things that they needed which made the difference for them, that stopped them after 20 years of mourning um, uh, going on like that. The first thing that they needed was a messenger. Verse 3. Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, if you're returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then, and so on. The key thing is, Samuel speaks. If you've been following it with me for the last few weeks, he's missing from chapters 4 to 6. Who knows where he was, what he was doing. But he wasn't there amongst the people speaking to them. And now, here he is, a man with a message. And it is a compromise, an uncompromising message. If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, rid yourselves of the foreign go- gods and the Ashtoreth and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Three things, he says, they are to do. First of all, they are to rid themselves of their gods and their, their, their Ashtoreths. Or as it, uh, uh, as it is described in verse 4, their Baals and their, their, their Ashtoreths. The Baals were the sort of male gods of the, the, the um, surrounding area, gods of power, literally lords they were called. The Ashtoreths were the female go- goddesses. Uh, uh, associated with fertility. You know, you, we're back to money, sex and power. We've come back to it almost every week, haven't we? That's what people, that's what people worship. They worship power, the bales. They worship sex and relationships, the ashterots. Get rid of your idolatrous attachment to wealth, to relationships, to status, to prestige, to worldly success. Stop thinking that the God of the stock exchange, or the God of Hollywood, or the God of university degrees, or the God of of Botox, or the God of the house of my own, or the God in the mirror, will serve you well. He will not They'd gone on, you see, having God comfortably worshipped up there. They had gone on worshipping those other gods. And Samuel says it's never going to work, mate. It's never going to work. Get rid of them. Our hearts always seek to worship something else as if it will give us ultimate satisfaction and it will not get rid of those foreign gods then says uh, uh, Samuel commit yourself to the, to the Lord or the ASV direct your hearts to the Lord perhaps the, 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 a better translation because the word is associated with la- laying foundations often and, and building a building you know, establish your hearts lay a foundation for your hearts on the Lord, let, let let your whole life have the Lord as its foundation. Let me ask you, what what makes your heart beat a little faster? My kids accuse me of uh, my iPhone makes my heart beat a little faster. I deny it, but there you go. They may be a better judges. What, what is that you? makes your heart beat a little faster? Any, whatever does that, if it is not the living God, it will want to insinuate itself into your heart as the foundation on which your life is built. Your little God. And what everyone has to do is with those things that make your heart beat a, beat a little faster, they're probably perfectly good things Turn your heart to the Lord and thank Him for what He has given you so that your worship goes to Him. Establish your hearts on the Lord, says Samuel. Get rid of those other idols, establish your hearts on the Lord and then the third thing will come relatively naturally. Serve Him only. If you have done those other two things, then you will serve the living God. You will be able to. We need a messenger to give us that message. To let it cut to our hearts. Now in one sense, in a very small sense. me and people like me, inherit that role. You will not find the living God, by and large, unless someone explains the Bible to you, the, the, the normal pattern. But actually, from where we're standing, there's something even more exciting than that. Because God gave a better messenger than Samuel or me, ultimately. He gave his son, Jesus, who was called the Word. Read the Gospels. Read and hear the voice of Jesus himself. His words cut deeper. His words speak the truth. If you are conscious yourself that God is out there, at a distance, open your Bible. Hear the word of Jesus. We need a messenger. We need as well says this story, an intercessor. Do you see verse 5? Samuel said, assemble all Israel at Mizpah and I will intercede with the Lord for you. They needed someone to pray for them. Christians here, are you praying for other people? You see a Christian brother or sister slipping away from their formerly vibrant faith. Are you praying for them? You see someone who is not yet a Christian starting to feel their dissatisfaction with this world. Are you praying for them? If you are not yet a Christian here, do you realise that it will not be ultimately your um, nobility of character or your ability that makes you a Christian? Only the work of God, only God himself can do that and that is why prayer is absolutely at the heart of what it means to getting right with God. We can't do it ourselves, just as Israelite knew, the Israelites knew they couldn't do it themselves. But here's another wonderful thing that we need to remember as Christians. There's another inter- intercessor greater than any Christian ministering on our behalf. It's Jesus. The New Testament says he is at the right hand of God interceding for us. He knows what it's like to live down here. He became a man. He knows what it's like to be human. And he whispers in the ear of God on our behalf. That's what he's doing for you right now. Isn't that amazing? You're hearing these words that I'm speaking and I hope that there are people here praying for one another, noiselessly, praying as we hear the word of God. And in the throne room of heaven, Jesus is saying God the Son to God the Father please God, be merciful again to that person. And let those words penetrate to the very depths of their being. That is what's going on. We need an intercessor because we are helpless on our own. All we can do is ask God. But there is a third thing that was needed in this story. A messenger to come and speak, for, speak to them, an intercessor to speak to God on their behalf. Notice those two directions of speech. Um, but then there's a third thing, a sacrifice. Look, look at verse 7. The Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah. The rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They're still fearful. They still sense that there needs to be something more to happen if they're not just to be slaughtered by the Philistines again. Let let me apply it here. Satan sees into your head. You're not oppressed by Philistines, but you are, we are, human beings are oppressed by all sorts of things that would draw our hearts away from worship of the living God. And he sees into your head, and he sees that things have started to be click and to dawn, and he says, let's throw into their heads as much as I possibly can to distract them. Let's threaten them with fearful pictures of what it might look like to, uh, to follow Christ with, with, with all my strength. Let's entice them with all sorts of things that might, um, uh, might stop them following Christ. And the key thing that changes that, the key thing that defeats the power of opposition, is very interesting, verse 8. They said to Samuel, don't stop crying out to the Lord for us. In other words, they sensed the need for intercession. Don't stop crying out to the Lord for us, that they may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. But Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf and the Lord answered him. Samuel added something to his intercessions. He added a sacrifice I mean, none, none of us here are called to offer a, a sacrifice in that sense. Those those days are gone for a very, very important reason. A final sacrifice has been made. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who paid for all of our sins who dealt with all the reasons that God might have to be angry with us. He died on the cross to bring us to God. And within this story you see it is that sacrifice that makes the difference. A messenger was vitally important to turn them around. Intercession was vitally important to appeal to God on behalf of those people. But it's the sacrifice that changes things. See that? While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines, threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. If you're a Christian here this morning, the central thing about your relationship with God is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. The central thing that has changed your relationship with God is that God the Son paid for your sins. And you see, it is that central truth that defeats all opposition to you. Finding God, having him at the centre of your life. And up and down the country, People are moving from that dissatisfaction with the world that Ian McEwan and Nick Hornby and many others show to a vital living relationship with God. And they are moving in that direction because they hear a messenger speak. Because others intercede for them. Because they see that God has done it all in Jesus. I'll just give you an example. Fay Weldon was an arch critic of Christianity. Years ago, she was invited by um, uh, a publisher to write a um, critical introduction to. Paul's letters to the Corinthians, at which she duly did. Dashed it off. But She realised she probably ought to read 1 and 2 Corinthians as part of that process. And that set her on a path that finally led her to profess faith in Christ. She do I entered the Church of England at St. Paul's Cathedral she said it was very appropriate because St. Paul converted me no he didn't Jesus Christ did he spoke to her he was her messenger he interceded on behalf, on her behalf before God he died for her on the cross to save her from her sins Now, that historian, Livy, he was writing it about the time of Christ. And he saw that the Roman Empire was in trouble. He never saw that it would be superseded by Christianity. And there are plenty of people who know that our culture is in trouble. And I am absolutely confident that long after our culture has passed into the pages of history, the Kingdom of God will be alive and well. That's what God does. But for you, the question is much more personal, and I want to impress it upon you. For you, it is this: Will you live with God on that hill over there? Or will you live with him in your midst?